The Bible reading is from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34, and it can be found on page 1113. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Damien, I want first of all to thank you very much for your welcome this evening and indeed for your invitation. Um, Bloomfield is a congregation in which I've worshipped on a number of times over the years. When we were in congregational ministry, we tried to spend at least one Sunday here during holidays, but I've never been asked to preach in Bloomfield before, so Damien's standards are definitely slipping during your interim here. <laughs> Let's pray together before we open God's Word at Acts chapter 17. Let's pray. Lord, it often seems as if a thousand different voices are clamoring for our attention 
and competing for our allegiance. As we come now to your word, the word of the living God, we long to hear that one voice which ultimately matters, and we want to respond with willing hearts. Speak to us, then we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is the cruise booked yet? Believe it or not, that was the most common question that I was asked as retirement loomed large on the horizon last year, for apparently that is how many people celebrate, if celebrate is the word. That's how many people celebrate this landmark along life's journey. Well, we didn't take a cruise but instead we visited three European cities that we had wanted to see for some time, Prague, Vienna, and Budapest. And we were not disappointed, for each of the three is brimming over with striking buildings and must-see locations. Even if you know little about European history or architecture, you cannot help but be impressed by it all. The bridges, the statues, the cathedrals, the palaces, the monuments, well, the list just goes on and on and on. If you wanted to take such a holiday back in the first century, then Athens, the capital of Greece, just had to be in your itinerary. Hence, even the Apostle Paul began his visit there with a sightseeing tour. Well, he had time to put in before Silas and Timothy arrived from Berea. And so the apostle wandered around the famous landmarks dominated by that stunning citadel, the Acropolis, with its huge temple, the Parthenon. How impressive it all should have been. For even today, tourists stand in awe at those ancient ruins. Yet Paul was not one bit impressed by what he saw. On the contrary, we're told in Acts 17 that he was distressed. Indeed, we're told that he was greatly distressed. The verb here is paroxuneto, from which we get our word paroxysm. This wasn't some kind of superficial passing emotion. It was an intense, gut-wrenching sense of anguish. The apostle was terribly annoyed. He was deeply troubled. He was all churned up inside. Why? Well, Paul was greatly distressed, we read, to see that the city was full of idols. Now, apparently, this was no exaggeration, full of idols. Indeed, one wit observed that you were more likely to see a god in Athens than you were to see a human being. Every street was lined with innumerable temples and statues. Each square boasted countless altars and shrines. And to Paul, this was far more significant than all the architectural splendor and the historical pride of Athens. For these shrines and temples and altars all contained idols, false representations of make-believe deities, 
And so people were being deceived and the Lord was being dishonored. When we were in Glengormley, I visited the Orr family in Japan along with one of our elders, David Farrow, whom some of you know well. I suppose it was really the first and perhaps the only time in my life that I actually understood the apostles' reaction. We visited the most famous Shinto shrine in Tokyo, a place where over one million people gather each New Year's Eve. We also went to a well-known Buddhist temple, which is a tourist magnet right in the heart of that bustling capital. At first, I was just doing the tourist thing along with so many others. The video was turning and the camera was clicking away. The Shinto shrine was quite serene and peaceful. It was beautiful, whereas the Buddhist temple was noisy and garish. Yet it wasn't long before the realization sank in. Many of these folk are here to worship, and they're here to worship a myth. This is idolatry in its most obvious form. Men, women, and children are being misled. Here I began to think, and the living God is not being recognized for who he is. And I can still recall David Farrow turning to me and saying, it's sad. It's so, so sad. And it was. And it was profoundly disturbing For when you are somewhere like that as a Christian, you don't just see it with your eyes. You actually feel it inside. Why is idolatry such an issue in the Bible? Because it diminishes the glory of the living God. It detracts from the honor of God. It seeks to replace God with inadequate and unworthy pretenders. Hence, those first two injunctions in the Decalogue. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. Notice, this does not forbid art or sculpture. It does not say you shall not make for yourself a picture or a statue, but you shall not make for yourself an idol. And the next prohibition goes on to explain exactly what constitutes an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Today, we're a bit embarrassed by that affirmation, are we not God jealous? We want only to say nice things about the Almighty. We we want God to sound almost soft and cuddly. But God isn't nice. He's good and he's loving, he's gracious, he's perfect. But he is also awesome in his majesty and sovereign in his ways, and he is jealous, jealous of his own godness, if I might put it like that, jealous of his honor. 
God is jealous just as a loving husband is rightly jealous of anyone who would steal away his wife's affection. God is jealous just as a caring mother is properly jealous for the well-being and the protection of her children. No, the living God will brook no rivals because, well, such rivals have no right to exist. I am the Lord, he declares in Isaiah 42, verse 8, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. So the pain, this paroxysm which Paul experienced was caused by his exposure to widespread idolatry. He was now on the home turf of Athena, goddess of wisdom and the city's patron. But the locals also tipped their hats to Zeus, the mighty one, to Diana, the huntress, to Bacchus, who prospered the vines, to Neptune and Venus and Hermes. The pantheon was almost as huge as an Argos catalogue. Athens had gods for every reason and every season, Greek or Roman, large or small, it didn't matter there was something there for everyone. Now, we don't live in a culture where statues of fictitious deities stand at every street corner, or do we? For when you read some of the bitter graffiti that still blights our landscape and scan the gaudy sectarian murals which mark our territories, does idolatry not stare us right in the face? Be it green, white, and gold, or red, white, and blue. But of course, idols can be erected in the heart as well, where no eye can detect their presence. John Stott hits the nail on the head when he writes that an idol is a God substitute. Any person or anything that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Covetousness is idolatry, he continues. Let's call that keeping up with the Joneses, will we? So can fame and wealth and power, sex, food, alcohol and other drugs parents, spouse, children, and friends, work, recreation, television, and possessions, even church, religion, and Christian service. An idol is a God substitute. Is it possible that even though we are here tonight engaged in the very business of Christian worship and engaged enthusiastically? Is it possible that we have allowed something or someone to usurp the place that rightly belongs to God, that rightly belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, then Jesus calls us from the worship of this vain world's golden store from each idol that would keep us, or as another version puts it, from each rival that would claim us. And he says, Christian, love me more. 
Well, Paul was deeply distressed by the idolatry around him, but he was also determined to respond in a positive manner. And what could be more positive than sharing the gospel? He began as was his pattern in the synagogue. For while there would be no idol worshippers there, you could be sure of that, the local Jews and any Greeks who had come to worship the living God, they needed to hear about Jesus. But the apostle also took his message to a wider audience. Athens was a city that prided itself on freedom of speech, well, within limits. The agora, or the marketplace, was not only a venue where business was transacted, it was also a setting where ideas were exchanged. And Paul was not afraid to go into that arena and state his case. Indeed, he welcomed such an opportunity. Now, each generation has to rediscover how this can be done. What worked even five or ten years ago may not work today, but Somehow, folks, we need to get our good news out there, don't we, into the world where the Lord has placed us. Not the world as we would like it to be, but the real world as it is today. On a daily basis, then, the apostle visited this agora where he would engage in discussion with others. But before long, a group of philosophers took him to task. Now, the members of this group, it wasn't homogeneous. They didn't all agree with each other. Some of them were known as Epicureans. And if you look up Epicurean in a modern dictionary, it will define an Epicurean as, as a hedonist, a dedicated pleasure seeker. That wasn't exactly what those Greek philosophers believed. But it may well have explained the end product for some of them. The Epicureans maintained that this life is all that there is. You only go around once. So if something looks good, try it. If it doesn't, give it a wide berth. Do all that you can indeed. Do anything that you want to experience pleasure and to avoid pain. The gods don't care how we live. Why should they? given their own brutal and immoral conduct. Does it ring any bells? Hasn't our society really bought into this Epicurean mentality? Yet it doesn't really result in much happiness or contentment. Indeed, as Jean Veith observed, boredom is a chronic symptom of a pleasure-obsessed age. When pleasure becomes our number one priority, the result, ironically, is boredom. But this group also contained a number of Stoics who maintained that we're simply at the mercy of fate, blind, cruel fate. Hence, bad things happen to even the best people. There's no rhyme or reason to life, no real purpose to it. All you can do is stand tall, stick out your chin, and take whatever comes. There was much that was noble about the Stoic ideal, but all in all, it was a sad, stiff, upper-lip philosophy which 
tended to drain any joy out of life. And like the Epicurean Stoics were inclined to look after number one. For after all, why get involved if nothing really makes sense? Now, despite their different views, many within these two factions were united in their verdict on Paul. Verse 18, what is this babbler trying to say? The word for babbler was local slang. Its literal meaning is seed picker. It was originally used of scavenging birds. In time, it was applied to beggars who lived off scraps of food from the gutter, yielding the term gutter snipes. And then eventually, it was used about dubious, uneducated teachers who bluffed their way, picking up a random idea here and there, a foolish notion in their heads. Eugene Peterson wonderfully replaces Athenian slang with American slang when he has those philosophers say, what an airhead. I'm going to replace it with Ulster slang. What an idiot. Why should anyone listen to this peculiar blow-in? He isn't one of us. But obviously some did listen to the apostles' teaching, even if they didn't quite understand what he was saying. He seems to be advocating foreign gods, they observed. How on earth could they think like that? When Paul was so adamant that there was only one God, well, his good news centered on Jesus and the resurrection. And given their polytheistic environment, their, their many gods environment, some of the apostles' hearers believed that Paul was proclaiming a male deity called Jesus and his female partner called Anastasius, the word for resurrection. They were mistaken, of course, but doesn't their mistake remind us of something vital, that whenever he spoke about Jesus, Paul emphasized that he is a risen Lord, he's a living Savior. Christian, this is absolutely fundamental to our faith. We live and we breathe today in the resurrection era. We inhabit today the territory of Christ's resurrection triumph. And so whatever our circumstances tonight, or even whatever our mood tonight, we have a joy that no Epicurean could ever experience. And we possess a hope that will continue to elude every Stoic. Now, Paul's message had clearly aroused some disquiet. And so he was summoned to present his case at a meeting of the Areopagus, a kind of city court. It doesn't seem that any formal charges were led against the apostle, but his was a, a new teaching in a society that revered old ways and distrusted novelty. Indeed, these were strange ideas. Who knows, there may be hidden dangers here for social unrest. So clarify what you're saying, demanded the members of that august gathering. 
How would you have expressed your convictions? Would you have bluntly denounced the almost stifling idolatry of that city? Would you have quickly decried the sexual promiscuity which almost always went hand in hand with pagan worship? But of course, if you start any conversation by immediately attacking those to whom you are speaking, they're unlikely to hang around to hear what else you have to say. Or if they do hang around, it certainly won't be to listen any further. Which is surely why Paul sought to build a bridge of understanding with his inquisitors. He tried to get on their wavelength, as we might put it. For as he toured their city, one altar in particular had caught his eye. It was marked to an unknown God. It seems that for all their religion, and Paul acknowledged that they were certainly religious. There was still a degree of agnosticism. There was still uncertainty. Could they have, could they have left someone out of their huge, all-embracing checklist? A God who was so important that you dare not offend him? Better to hedge your bets and keep such a being sweet just in case. Hence this altar to an anonymous God. And yes, you're right, said the apostle. You've got it right here. There is an unknown God. There's a God of whom you have been unaware until now. But he's not another product of the human imagination. He's not another fictional superhero to add to your collection. Verse 24, this is the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth. Oh, they would have slotted in an extra name quite happily, added another page to the catalog, as an increasing number of people are willing to do today. Why why give credence to only one faith when you can supposedly make room for them all? But the Bible insists that it is the God who has revealed himself in creation and in Scripture and supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is he alone who is the true and living God. Oh, the living God doesn't inhabit earthly temples, declared the apostle. He is Lord of the entire cosmos. The living God doesn't need food offerings to keep him alive. He sustains our lives. Your, your own poets have acknowledged that. The living God is not some localized partisan deity. He is the originator of all nations and nationalities. Yes, verse 26 is highly relevant to many a discussion about race today. We all owe our existence to him, and we depend upon him for every breath that we take. 
so? So what? His Athenian audience might have responded. And this is where Paul really took his courage in both hands. There comes a point when the gospel presents us with a choice. In the past, verse 30, God overlooked your ignorance, such ignorance. You didn't know any better then than to worship these make-believe deities. But now, now that Jesus has come and died and risen again, God commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is not just a message to be discussed and debated and then forgotten, warned the apostle. God requires a response from all who hear his word. Why, some readers ask, why did Paul apparently make no explicit reference to the cross if, as he states elsewhere, the atoning death of Jesus lies at the very heart of God's salvation plan? Well, of course, we don't know what else he might have said that day because this is almost certainly a summary of a much longer address. But surely he focused on the resurrection precisely because this is where the Athenians were confused. You're advocating two gods, they alleged. He couldn't have that. No, I'm not, he explained. I'm proclaiming Jesus, God's appointed one, God's anointed one who died. Yes, but who triumphed over the grave. Oh, you Stoics, you Epicureans. You 21st century skeptics and agnostics, you've all got it so wrong. There is life after death, and our eternal destiny depends on what we believe about this Jesus in the here and now. Verse 30, now God commands all people everywhere to repent. What does it mean to repent Eugene Peterson explains it like this. Repentance is not an emotion. It is not feeling sorry for your sins. It is a decision that you have been wrong. Wrong in supposing that you could manage your own life and be your own God. Repentance is deciding that God in Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. Repentance is a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Some of Paul's listeners had no intention of doing any such thing. Indeed, we're told that they sneered, specifically when they heard about the resurrection of the dead. So far as they were concerned, when you're gone, you're gone, full stop. It's a, a fairly bleak outlook, isn't it? Others were more cautious. We want to hear you again on this subject, they said. It's always an encouragement when folk want to explore the gospel further with us. And some, we learn, actually believed God's message and embarked on a new life in Christ that same day. A man called 
Dionysius, a woman called Damaris, and a number of others, others meaning at least two. Now certain scholars think that this sermon, was it a sermon? I'm not sure. But they think that it was a failure because only a few people, four, maybe five, perhaps six, believed. And it may well be that Paul revised his approach from then on. I'm just not sure about that. But you know, given the nature of Athens and given the makeup of the Areopagus, wasn't four or five or six converts a wonderful outcome? I would be delighted with it anyway any time that I preach the gospel. You see, even in the book of Acts, there was no repetition of Pentecost every time the good news was proclaimed. When Paul stood before that Greek court, he was simply doing what a fellow apostle urges every believer to do, and then leaving the outcome to God's Holy Spirit. Peter wrote, If you are asked about your Christian hope, this is from the New Living Translation. If you are asked about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But you must do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Folks, that is our part in the Athens that you and I inhabit today to graciously but honestly explain our hope. And as we do, to pray that God will speak through us to a Dionysius here and to a Damaris there and perhaps even to others whose names we do not yet know, all to the glory of his name. Amen. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. Amen.